I begin this morning with two questions. Uh, You may want to just speak a quiet answer in your spirit to the Lord God to each question. Or perhaps you may even want to raise your hand in the privacy of your home to honor the Lord. But the answer to these questions will determine if what you hear in our study in the book of Ruth is true for you now or it may become an invitation for you to come to the banquet hall of faith. This, of course, is going to be a study of the book of Ruth, but I want to begin with two questions that are found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. The verse or section in Romans is one of the greatest assurances of God's love in all the Bible. This leads to a life that is crowned with confidence in the providence of God. The truth of this verse has two qualifications. It is not true for everyone. It is true for the people described in this verse. The Bible says in Romans 8:28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love for those who are called according to his purpose. So here are the two questions. First, do you love God? Now, I'm not asking, do you love Him perfectly? Uh, We all know that you can have real, uniting love without it being perfect. All you have to do is think about the husband-wife relationship. Enough said, correct? It's not ever going to be absolutely perfect. It is a growing love, however. In fact, the greater and the more authentic our love is for one another the more keenly we are aware of its imperfections. The real question here about love is this. Do you treasure Jesus Christ above all things? Because what you treasure most is what your heart is going to embrace. So question one, do you love God? Question two, have you been called according to his purpose? Notice I did not say... Have you ever heard the gospel or have you heard an invitation calling you to repent and believe? Verse 30 actually makes it plain what the call is that we're talking about. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This calling is an effective summons that woke you up from your slumber and arrogance and ignorance and rebellion so that you saw Jesus in all of his glory and submitted your life to him. Now, if you've answered yes to those questions, then the rest of this sermon this morning is gloriously true for you. And if you could not answer yes, the message could be even more relevant to you because the spirit of the living God could be drawing you to the person of Christ. So this verse lays the very foundation for the confidence that we should have in the sovereignty of our God, even in days of the COVID-19. This is a foundation for us. This verse doesn't mean that everything will turn out okay in this life. It means rather that everything will work out for our ultimate good. And of course, our God defines what that good is. 
So, according to this text, what God is going to do is conform you to the image of his son. So I would say that the ultimate good will only be seen when we are glorified with him and we are ultimately conformed to the image of Christ. So we clearly see that what we have always known in that day when we're glorified in Christ, that God worked all things, pleasures, pains, experiences of tremendous sufferings, disappointments. God works for the good of those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Our immense confidence comes from the certainty of our redemption. Again, just look at the golden chain of redemption, the calling, the justification, the glorification, what God has done in us. It leads to a confidence in us. And as Paul is going to explain, this confidence should exude in all of us. Why? Because according to this confidence, God will withhold nothing in taking care of us. Verse 31 through 33 of Romans 8. Second, he will allow nothing to condemn us. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? <clears throat> it is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? So not only will he allow nothing to condemn us, but also he will allow nothing to separate us from his great love. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. So here we see in the scripture, uh, this verse, Romans 8, 28, should be in your mind as a backdrop as we study the book of Ruth. It will become evident for all of you as we study this book how awesome and wonderful is the providence and sovereignty of our God. Have you ever noticed how we, especially in our day and age, attempt to exonerate God in dark events. The book of Ruth places all of the dark events of life at the providential hand and feet of our God himself. The book of Ruth can provide memorable insight. It can provide a renewal for the child of God in the area of the providence of God, the fact that God is in control of all things. Uh, if you time it, it takes about 25 minutes at a leisurely place, pace to read through the book. It provides wisdom and encouragement for weary people. Can we identify with weariness over the last five weeks? We know what that looks like. The book of Ruth provides a look at realistic faith in dark and frowning providences. It's a story that shows our God working in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. It's a story for people who wonder where God is when there are no dreams, no visions, and no prophets. It's a story for people who wonder where God is when one tragedy after another attacks their faith. It's a story for people who wonder whether a life of godliness is worth living when times are difficult, and it's a story for people who can't imagine anything great that could ever come out of ordinary faith or ordinary lives of faith. One of the main messages of this little book is that God is at work in the worst of times. Even through his people's sins, God still plots for 
their glory and good. For his glory and their good. It was true on the national level. And you will find in the book of Ruth that it's true on the personal level and the family level too. God is at work in the worst of times. When you think he's the farthest from you or has turned against you, the truth is he's laying foundation stones for the greater purpose that he has in your life. Let's see how this unknown author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, teaches us this particular principle that God is at work in the worst of times. Now, I think, especially in Baptist life, we need God, as we study the book of Ruth, to change our vocabulary about him, right? But we also need our God to change our view of him. Scholars suggest to us that Ruth was written around 900 B.C. There's some argument. Some want to argue that it's post-exilic. I think it is closer up to the period of the Judges. Obviously, chronologically, the story takes place in the time of Judges. But there's arguments of actually when the book itself was written. I think it was written around 900 B.C. We do not know who the author was. Some speculate that it was Samuel. But the reality is we just don't know. This thing we do know, it's a book about the providence of God. Did you know that our society at large knows nothing of that term providence? And I would even add that few churches even talk about the term providence, the providence of God. Our society might have a response to what we call divine providence or biblical our biblical definition of the sovereignty and or providence of God, but they would prefer terms like luck, chance, and fate, F-A-T-E. But these words do not fit in a Christian vocabulary in our world view. Those terms are the world's way of dealing with divine providence. It was just luck, chance, or fate. As one preacher put it, I hope by the time anyone finishes a study of the book of Ruth, you would never say good luck again. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we see that our God is in control of all things? Now, the, the con, one confession, let's go ahead as I get to the book of Ruth now. Uh, let's start by giving you a definition of providence because it's, it would be easy to assume that we know what's going on when we use a term like providence. Uh, let me give you the Heidelberg Catechism definition of providence. This is what it says. The almighty, everywhere, present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs, grass, rain, and drought, fruit and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Such is the providence of God. As we begin our study in Ruth, there's no way to deny the reality of difficult times or frowning providences. Not only can we see this reading the book of Ruth, but you know this in your own life, experientially, that it is true. God appoints things which seem like he is frowning on us. 
The first five verses form a quick-hitting introduction to this story of incredible providence in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. We should certainly consider the details in Naomi's life as the worst of times. Was God working? His wonders to perform, even in dark times? Well, let's look at the text and see. The Bible says, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was bereft, right? Was left without her two sons and her husband. Let me point out several important things out of the first five verses that show that the sovereign God of the universe was at work even in the darkest days. First, God is at work when times are evil. Listen to the text. In the days when the judges ruled. We are given a chronological marker in the very opening words of the book of Ruth. It was when the judges ruled. This time period was from 1375 B.C. down to 1050. If you're a student of the Word of God, you will remember and recall that this was a very, very low point morally, spiritually, religiously in all of Israel. The family lived during the period of the judges. That's the context. That's the background. If you know your Bible history, you will recall, recall that Joshua had faithfully led the people of God into the promised land. And after the conquest of the land, there came what's called the settlement of the land. So in Joshua's time frame, before he died, it would be called the conquest and the settlement of the land. So Joshua would remind the people that not one promise of our God had failed to be accomplished during that time frame. God faithfully led his people into the promised land. You will remember that Joshua will end up, when he is 110 years old, he will give a farewell sermon before he dies. And do you remember it? You should. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, all of us will assume, if you read Joshua uh, 24, you would assume that the people would bank their hope in God, that they would trust the faithfulness of God. They would look back at his track record and say, God has been so faithful to his promises and keep them. And they would all say amen to Joshua. And if you read Joshua 24, the people say, far be it from us. We're going to do exactly what God is asking. But if you just turn a couple of pages into the book of Judges, you will find that there arose a generation 
who did not know the Lord. They did not keep the faithfulness of our God before the people. And this period of judges begins to take place after the death of Joshua. It was a time of moral and spiritual anarchy. There arose a generation, again, according to Judges 2, that did not serve the Lord nor keep the faithfulness of our God before the people. The people of God go after false gods. They go after other nations. They worship idols. And God would raise up a nation to chastise the people, to oppress the people. And what would the people do? They would languish in oppression until finally they would cry out to God and ask God to forgive them and bring them deliverance. And what would God do? He would raise up a judge. Now, I want to remind you that most of which were less than heroic and God-honoring. We know this. They would be raised up by God in order to free them from the oppression of the nations. But did it solve the problem? You would think that after one generation saw the demise of their belief in Yahweh and how they lived and the idols they went after, that they would turn back to the Lord, but they did not. This time began to be a cycle that would continue for generations, three to four hundred years, or two to three hundred years. So in Judges 17 and 18, we learn of a guy named Micah who made carved molten images. He made a shrine in his household, a Levite from Bethlehem. Get this now, a priest came to Ephraim where Micah lived, and Michael, Micah hired him as his own personal priest. That's sweet, isn't it? Right? Priests for hire. That could just be paid something at any moment and believe just about anything and not lead the people correctly. He was hired for some money, a suit, and some food. In chapter 18, the Danites come to Micah's house. They steal his idols and his priest. We get a clear impression that Israel is absolutely sick when it comes to spiritual leadership. The people are given to a form of humanistic religion. They find that it is satisfying and it is comfortable. The spiritual leaders of the nation, we might say, are men for hire. They sell their, they sell their souls and their calling for power, for pleasure, and prestige. You only need to read Judges 18, 19 through 20 to see it. In that day, as in ours, ministers at times were not held in the highest esteem. We also see immorality and anarchy. In Judges 19 through 20, you almost get chills in the, at the depth of the moral decay, the moral chaos in society because of the spiritual leaders not taking leadership, because of the anarchy. But we have an ominous story that's given to us in Judges 19 through 21 of the rape and murder of a Levite's concubine who was from Bethlehem. A Levite takes a prostitute for himself. But being a prostitute, she plays the harlot against him and goes back to Bethlehem. He went after her, and after numerous delay tactics by her father, he left and eventually came to Gibeah to spend the night. You'll see this in chapter 19, 13 through 21. However, the Bible tells us that perverted, evil, homosexual men of the tribe of Benjamin came to the house where he was staying and wanted to engage him in homosexual activity. And that's found in 19.23-29. In Judges 20, it records the war of the other tribes against Benjamin. Why? Because of this gross evil 
thousands of Israelites were slaughtered, and the tribe of Benjamin was nearly annihilated. Judges 21 records Israel's attempt to save Benjamin from extinction. And what was the plan? Well, they do so by murdering the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, who had not fought against Benjamin. And later they allowed men from Benjamin to take wives and daughters from Shiloh at an annual feast. And the Bible says it was without restraint. Can you just think about the people of God who had just said to Joshua, far be it from us, we're going to serve our God. And just in a matter of a few generations, you have this kind of moral and spiritual chaos going on in the land. We may say that God is not visible on anyone's moral radar. The lives of the covenant people of God were scarcely different than the lives of the pagan neighbors around them. Israel was a moral cesspool. If you were uh, to take your copy of God's Word, or actually on my page, Ruth is on the right, and if I just look to the left, I see the end of the book of Judges. Maybe you do the same, but if you look at verse 25, this, what, this is what epitomized that day. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's called an absence of authority, right? And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Awful apostasy. This was what was going on in those days. Now, uh, we might say that uh, our day is, is the worst it's ever been, right? But I want to remind you that the book of Judges teaches a time when it was just as bad, right? It was, and the Bible teaches this. Do you know what we can say about those days? Well, we can say that the God who is the sovereign ruler over all things... In his divine providence establishes governments and kings and kingdoms, both the good and the evil. Now, sometimes that's hard for us to grasp. You only need to turn over to the book of Daniel. And church folks listening to this, you should be very much familiar with this. But if you take your copy and look, I'm going to read fast because of time. But listen to Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And then in Daniel 4, 17, listen to the word of the Lord. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God appointed the time of the judges. God appoints governmental leaders. You only need to read Romans 13 to figure this out. And if you don't have room in your theology to see God appointing good and bad rulers and leaders, then I would encourage you to read the Bible. When you read the Bible, you will see that God's purposes far supersede anything that we could ever imagine. He works in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. And God is the sole ruler of mankind. And He appoints who will rule and who will be cast down. It doesn't mean that we just throw up our hands, right? And live, say, let's just live with it. No, we should pray. We should work hard for change. 
We should beseech our leaders to change. We are called to pray for those who lead us. That's what Romans 13 is about, those that we are in subjection to. That the Bible says in Romans 13 that, again, God appoints them. Yet remember that the providence of God extends not only to the good kings, but also to the Neros of this world. God uses these men to fit into his divine purpose. God in the midst of anarchy, spiritual apostasy, was moving and controlling all things. In our day, folks, God can be trusted. You can trust that he is in absolute control, just like he was during the period of the judges. He is especially needed as the object of all of our affection and devotion when times are evil. Whether in our day or in the day of the judges in 21st century America, uh, think about this. Everyone may be doing their own thing, but we ought to determine to do God's thing. We need to do what is right, not in man's eyes, but in God's eyes. Naomi and her family faced this kind of time, the period of the judges. Number two, God is at work in times of famine. Listen to the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, if you study the word, you will find that there are some secondary causes that we could say, okay, this is why the Israelites have this famine, and this is why this is going on, but make no mistakes about it. Who brought the famine about? God brought the famine. Note, Bethlehem means the house of plenty, the house of bread, and yet the house of bread has a famine. We read from Deuteronomy 32, 23 through 24, that it is the Lord God that promises, if you disobey, I will send famine, pestilence, and the sword. Do you remember when a prophet comes out of nowhere and he says to the wicked king Ahab, bucko, three years and no rain. That's what Elijah said to Ahab. We're going to have three years, and better yet, it will not rain until I say so. And this is the word of the Lord. Psalm 105.16 says that God is the one who brings famine. We often look at a famine as a natural evil, and we want to exonerate our God from this. Surely, we would think to ourselves, God has nothing to do with this. All you have to do is think about pictures we see. And we think about famine in, in foreign lands and how difficult this can be. But I want to remind you, if he is all good and all powerful, we are left with a choice. Now, the question is, is he all powerful and is he all good? Well, we're left with a choice. Either the devil is a lot bigger than our God and what the Bible says about him and that God and Satan are in some kind of punching match, some kind of dualistic, cosmic, infinity war. You children know what that is, right? Boxing match. Or God, who is good and all-powerful, appoints even natural disasters for his own purposes according to his good and holy will. If you don't have room in your theology for God controlling hurricanes and floods and famines and even COVID-19, you need to go back and read the Word of God. 
It's God who withholds rain. Listen to the word of the Lord. Job chapter 37. It would be great for you to put your eyes on this one. Job 37, beginning in verse 6. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. I've been living in Missouri for three and a half years, and I'm asking God to give us a good snow. I want him to do this. Let the snow fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lyres and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Note verse 13. God uses weather as an instrument to accomplish his will. Here's how he does it. Whether for correction, for his land, we would call that conservation, or for love. Call that compassion. Put this in your mind theologically. God uses the weather for correction, for conservation, and for compassion. He does it according to his divine will. It is God who withholds rain or gives rain. He can feed the just and the unjust. Our God does all this, folks, without sin. Do you think that God just wound up this world like a clock and stepped back from it? Well, that's what the deist believed in the early on, that he's just letting this world run on its own and that God has absolutely nothing. He was the big watchmaker. He made it, but then he wound it up and set it to the side, and he has no intimate Uh, imminent involvement with it whatsoever. If that is your view, then you've ceased to be a Christian theist and you have actually become a deist. Our God, according to the Bible, is intimately and imminently involved in his creation order. So God was at work, not only in evil times, but God was even at work during the famine. Number three, God is at work in times of bad decisions. Back over in Ruth... Verse 1 and 2, again, but the latter part. The Bible says, A man of, the Beth- of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife Naomi, and then the name of the two sons. Here is Elimelech, whose name means, My God is King. Her husband makes a bad decision. To go to Moab and leave the house of bread during a famine was a bad decision. We'll see a little later when they come back to town that Naomi is seen by her people and greeted. Naomi has come home. Well, how did they were at home? So the odd thing was to leave the house of bread, not uh, to, to stay was the normal trend, but they actually left. So to go to Moab during the famine was a bad decision. Now we realize that others in the Bible left a particular place during a time of famine. We know that Abraham went to Egypt during a famine. We know that Jacob went to the land of the Philistines. Why should we study the Bible and see 
from this that Elimelech's decision was actually a bad decision. Well, I want to remind you that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for that matter, had not inherited the land of promise. He, Elimelech, had received his inheritance. He was actually planted in the land of promise. And again, verse 2 tells us that Moab becomes Elimelech's home. Going to Moab disobeyed God's directions. And staying in Bethlehem disregarded and invited the very discipline of God. It's also noted that most of the Ephrathites remained, like I said before. So Elimelech's family did the odd thing. A man whose name is my God, is king, moved out from the blessing of God and the promised land that God had given to his people, and he goes down to Moab. Uh, just think about this. To be uprooted from your land uh, as an Israelite would mean severance from inheritance. It would mean severance from your clan that you belong to. Remember, God sovereignly gave them their pieces of land that they have, and then also severance from your God. Much like uh, Ruth's words a little later to Naomi, uh, my God shall be your God, and my people shall be your people. And, and Ruth is showing that devotion. Well, similarly, here is Elimelech leaving his family. Why? So, and incidentally, Moab was the land of the enemy. You, you see it over and over and over, filled with pagan deities. Not to say that the king of Moab, Moab had done the Israelites wrong when they needed that land. He said, no, you're not stopping at all. And we know that they were enemies. My question is, was Elimelech morally accountable for his decision? Well, you better believe it. He was. But did God have a purpose with the family moving down to Moab? Was God ultimately the cause? Elimelech bore the responsibility for his decision. Can I show you in the Word of God where we see this tension that we all have to deal with and we, we struggle with the tension, but we see totally that mankind is morally accountable, but we also see the Lord God of heaven working in the midst of moral accountability to, to accomplish His will. Acts chapter 2. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What does the Lord do? He lays the accountability uh, upon the Israelites and the Romans for actually crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. They are morally accountable, yet Jesus was not delivered up by chance, but the predetermined will of God. We cannot exonerate moral accountability. This was the dark, frowning providence of a bad decision. Sitting in the quietness of your home, can you think of bad decisions that you made as a born-again believer? And you can't even hardly fathom the thoughts of even contemplating the decisions that you've made, and yet you are a believer. Bad decisions. Though morally accountable for those decisions we are, they are still under the providential workings of Almighty God. Do you see it? Clearly given in the text before us. And over once again, chapter 4, verse 27, just to add one more. Notice what the Bible says. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod 
and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Here's this whole group of people against his anointed, against God's anointed. And look what verse 28 says. This is a prayer to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We are bringing together that mysterious workings of a sovereign, awesome God whose ways are far above ours. We'll never figure him out. And yet in the midst of uh, the most cruel act that could ever be imagined between the Israelites and the Romans and, and those men on that day, Peter would remind us in that prayer that it was the sovereign God of the universe who delivered him up to do whatever his hand had predestined to take place. What a mighty God we serve. And fourthly, God is at work in times of sorrow. If it's not enough to think that Moab was a bad decision, three funerals in succession would remind all of us of the frowning providence of God and the difficulties that come. And when we read that, we're thinking, how can anything good come out of a famine and, and in succession, three funerals? But folks, God was at work in times of sorrow. The Bible says in verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. No filler. It's all quick, isn't it? Quick hitting. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. Hmm, ray of hope, right? The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husbands. Do you know that the rabbis taught that Elimelech died because of divine judgment. Well, we can affirm that Almighty God holds the time of our deaths in his hands. And he is the one, according to the Bible, who numbers our days. Let me show you from the Bible. If you just flip back to Deuteronomy, here's what the Bible says. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he... And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when I, as yet there was none of them. And then Job, chapter 14, verse 5. The Bible says, Since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You know what all that says to me? I've got good news and bad news. The good news is you're going to live all the way up to the final day when God says you're going to live. The bad news is you're not going to live one day longer than God intended for you to live on the face of this earth. Now catch this, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. I can guarantee you on the authority of the word of God, that is the truth. Doesn't it seem sudden? Just like that, Elimelech died. Ten years later, Malon and Kilion. The death of a mate it's tragic. The death of a mate in a foreign place, away from home, even more so. To consider that Elimelech, my God is king, ended up being buried in Moab. 
Just think about how difficult that is. Death is so vicious. It's ugly. We should all rejoice at this point because the Lord Jesus Christ has plucked the stinger straight out of death because of his resurrection. We see that from this side, don't we? You will escape death because of resurrection life. The Bible says, even though you should die, yet will you live. And yet God was at work in the midst of this situation. Now, our attention moves away from Elimelech, and it moves to the central character starting off here until it gets to Ruth, and it moves to the life of Naomi. It will be Naomi's uh, life. It will be Naomi's future. It will be Naomi's destiny. And it becomes the crucial concern of the book. Yet, it's going to get worse. Seems to be a brief ray of hope when it reminds us that she has two sons and they take wives. First, I want to remind you that Malon, who marries Ruth, means sickly. And Kilion, who marries Orpah, means spent or wasting away. How would you like to be a bride that married two dudes with those kind of names? Sickly and wasting away. Whether these names were given at birth because they were poor in health or coined later, the names tell the story, don't they? Of premature death and sorrow. Here's the second thing. They marry Moabite women. They marry women from Israel's enemy. Deuteronomy 23.3 says it is not, the people of Moab are not to enter the commonwealth of Israel for ten generations. The Moabites were pagans. You remember Esau married outside of the faith and it breaks his parents' hearts. Samson did the same thing in Judges chapter 14. He has eyes for one that's not an Israelite. So it breaks Manoah's heart when Samson goes after a Philistine. So marrying the Moabite women was a bad decision. Again, yet a bad decision under the very providence of God. I want to remind you that I believe personally as a pastor and according to the word of God that it's a sin to marry outside of the faith. I want to remind all the youth listening to this, please don't flirt with the idea of courting a non-believer. You need to be very careful. Why? Because you may, in your words, fall in love. Well, I've got my theory on falling in love. Nothing that you fall into could ever be that good. It just can't. Now, the providence of God, of course, can override that bad decision. It can. What you intended in a disobedient way for evil, God can turn it around and use it for good. We've heard that verse in this service already. But don't use that as an excuse for a bad decision. We must obey, and here's where it comes in, the revealed word of God. You and I cannot live our life making a decision according to the secret counsel of God. You can't do it because you don't know it. And I don't know it. We can't live our lives in how we can interpret the providence of God. It's dangerous to say, well, I know what the Word of God says, but what is God really trying to tell me through this? And he may turn it into good for me in this situation. 
We must go by the written word of God in all of our decision making. If God turns that bad decision for good, then that's God's prerogative. Because he is sovereign. He's the king. We are accountable for obeying the revealed word of God. Now check this out. These two boys, sickly and wasting away, get married. Can you, can you imagine that? I, Orpha, take you sickly. Right? Are, are, are already wasting away right at the time they're getting married. But thus we are grieved. But we're not surprised at the way our God works. Right? Again, chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 20. Brother David quoted this. What you intended for evil, God meant it for good. Notice this one. This is interesting. I mentioned to you about judges, about the fact that Samson takes a wife of a Philistine. But this is amazing. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Manoah's upset, but listen to verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. <laughs> Isn't it amazing to see the providence of God that even in a lame brain decision to marry a Philistine, his parents did not know that the sovereign God of the universe was at work plotting to accomplish his purposes. We know in Proverbs 16, 19 that man makes his decision, but God sets our path. God does that for us. Thus we are grieved, and, but not stunned that Naomi is left alone. No husband and no sons and the daughter-in-laws more than likely are going to return to their homeland. So to understand the dark providence here is to remember that Naomi was in the most de desperate situation that any woman could be living in in her culture. There were no federal programs for people like Naomi during her time. When her two sons died, think about this, all of her hope of sustenance, her inheritance, and anything those two boys could bring to the table is gone. God, in his eternal purpose, will appoint a Moabite damsel named Ruth and raise up a kinsman redeemer named Boaz and put both of them in the line of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. There's only four women in the genealogy of Christ, and Ruth is one of them. That's a great sermon to preach. The four women in the genealogy of Christ, they don't have the best pedigrees, many of them. But here, God does this. It's his story. We might say that this book of Ruth begins the story first of God raising up King David, listen to how the end of the book reads. Chapter 4. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You know, God was going to raise up that king after his own heart. And we see the sovereignty of God at work. God in his divine providence desired for a kinsman redeemer and a Moabite girl to be in the genealogy of the very Son of God. He wanted Ruth in that messianic line. So God orchestrated the entire symphony. He wove together the entire tapestry according to his own will, even among the ugly pieces of life. There is real pain out there in this world, folks, we cannot diminish the accountability in moral decisions, yet we must recognize 
through the eyes of faith, the invisible hand of God at work in all situations. David and Cammie sang a song for us tonight, of today, for our sermon, God Works in a Mysterious Way. The song was written by William Cooper. Now, it looks like uh, Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's actually pronounced Cooper. And he lived between 1731 and he died in 1800. He wrote a hymn that we all love called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins, and Sinners Plunged Beneath That Flood Lose All Their Guilty Stains. But he also wrote that incredible hymn. He actually wrote 15 hymns that are given to his credit. And that one hymn, God Works in a Mysterious Way, and that terminology of behind a frowning providence, it hides God's smiling face. What incredible words uh, for us to think about. And if you've ever read anything about William Cooper, he grew up as a little boy with a lot of difficulties. He was sickly. And add on top of that, that his mother died when he was seven years old. And his father wasn't the best example to little William at all about fatherly care and taking care of him. He was actually in many ways just put out and not cared for. But the history tells us that William went through bouts of depression, four major times of depression. And he actually uh, grew up and pursued a law degree. He wanted to become an attorney. And he did all of his schoolwork, and he got right up to that time to take the bar exam. And he was an extremely shy individual. He got ready to take it, and the night before, he attempted to hang himself. Back in those days, if you attempted suicide, you went immediately into an insane asylum. And this is where William found himself. And yet, he had an association with a friend named John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And actually, in this insane asylum, William heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and was gloriously saved. And this was a new man when he met Christ. He was immediately made whole. William would reflect upon this his life and use, think about all these dark times that God used in his life to make him who he was. And William uh, would, again, write those incredible hymns of faith. Uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And then this one, God moves in a mysterious way. It reflects the, the dark days of his life and how his sovereign God was at work through the providence of God in William's life. Listen to verse 4. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The last verse says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I would invite you to take this time in your home to listen to Brother David and Miss Cammie as they sing this wonderful song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Way is 
question for you this morning is, what sustains you when times are dark and difficult? What sustains you when your marriage fails? What sustains you when a child rebels? What sustains you when COVID-19 causes you to lose your job because of cutbacks? What sustains you when you receive that dreaded phone call from the doctor concerning the worst news you could ever hear about your health? What sustains you when valuable relationships shatter right before your very eyes? Well, this is my testimony to you this morning. I've witnessed him, the Lord God, manage the microcosmic details of my life in order to put together the macrocosmic purpose for his own glory. Our God is at work appointing and plotting for his glory and our good at all times. Can you stand today in your home and affirm Romans 8, 28, 28? Do you believe in the God of the first five verses of the book of Ruth? Just consider this. A famine, three successive funerals, doesn't seem like God is at work, but we know the rest of the story. Furthermore, Jesus Christ 
being willing to die for our sins doesn't seem like a good story, right? Doesn't seem like it's going to work out okay, right? But we know the rest of the story. God was and is at work in the lives of his people all the time. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you that, Lord, behind a frowning providence, it hides a smiling face, and that you, our sovereign God, are at work even in the worst of times. We need to hear this in the midst of the COVID-19 virus. Lord, this did not fly under a sovereign God's radar without your awareness. We know full well that you control all things. And Lord, we pray and we ask that you would put an end to it. But more importantly, we ask as your children that we would learn to trust you, our sovereign God, that you are in control. And we would be able to confess and say that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.